If everybody could turn their Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 41. Now I wanted to just preface this with saying, the reason why I'm here today is because the elders thought it would be great for you to meet me, and there's no better way to get to meet a preacher than by hearing him preach the word of God. And I want to thank the elders for that opportunity. I want to thank you guys for willing to listen. And I want us to ring true one more message from that song we just sung, Behold the Word of God. Because that's what we have to do today as we read this. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 41. And this is the first part of a two-part series over the next two weeks, how we go from the gospel to the gathering. Particularly today in verses 37 through 41, how do we have gospel growth at Santan Bible Church? And then next week, we're going to talk about how we have gospel-centered gathering here together. So follow along with me in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could add 3,000 souls to this church. But also, wouldn't it be dangerous if we did it in a way that wasn't with the standards that we see here in Acts chapter 2? You see, I first started off in corporate finance, and when I came to Christ, I never imagined that there would be a corporatization of growth models in the church. And I'm sure you guys have felt that a little bit too, as you've gone from church to church. And I never would have imagined that we would have tried to scale the economy of discipleship, but at the same time diluting the power of membership. And what we see here as Luke, the author of the book of Acts, explains Peter's sermon that it's exactly the opposite. We can't dilute membership for sake of growth. We can't dilute discipleship for the sake of growth. Instead, we need to learn three standards that Luke shows from Peter's sermon so that we can have gospel-centered growth, healthy growth, here at Santan Bible Church. And as expositors and verse-by-verse church, we go to the Word of God and we dissect it. And that's what we're going to do here. But first, I want you to consider something that Charles Spurgeon considered in 1887 with the downgrade controversy. You see, it's nothing new that the church growth has led to a downgrade in the growth at times in church history. And if you read church history, you see the wealth of information and the lessons learned. And Spurgeon says of this in an article on the the sword and the trowel in 1887. He says this, Believers in Christ's atonement are now in declared union with those who make light of it. Believers in the Holy Scripture are 
in confederacy with those who deny plenary inspiration. Those who hold evangelistic doctrines are in open alliance with those who call the fall a fable, who deny the personality of the Holy Spirit, who call justification by faith immoral, and hold that there is another probation after death. It is our solemn conviction that there should be no pretense of fellowship. Fellowship with the known and vital error is participation in sin. So my heart behind this message, and I believe what Peter is trying to show us, is that there are standards to growing. We want growth, but we won't want to grow for growth's sake. We want to grow healthy. So what are those standards, and how do we grow healthy in the church in a gospel-driven way? Well, I believe there are three standards here that Luke shares from Peter's sermon so that we have gospel growth. First, in verse 37, the standard is that we have to grow with converts that respond humbly. Converts that respond humbly. Follow along with me in verse 37 as I read it. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? You know, now is a continuation of a giant mountain. This is really picking up at the peak of the iceberg, just the tip. And when we hear that they heard something, we have to go back and listen to what they heard. What specifically allowed them to logically continue in a recipient, humble way? What allowed them to follow in response to action? What was the call to their repentance? We also understand that this was simultaneous. As they heard the message, they responded. And what we learn from this is is immediately following a gospel message, there will be hearts that are troubled. Even in this very day here, I imagine that some of you will be troubled in your heart. We would be unwise to imagine that every person in this congregation is saved. And every person in this congregation is sanctifying. And every person in this congregation is serving. But that's our aim as we behold Scripture as we learn to grow in the gospel. So let's look underneath the tip of the iceberg. What was Peter's sermon doing? Why did it pierce the hearts of those whom heard? And why was it so powerful? And what can we learn from that? So let's go a little bit and look at Acts chapter 2, 14 through 36 and just get some highlights from what Peter's sermon had that we can digest this and understand fully the context behind this. First, the historical setting of this context is Pentecost. And that literally in the Greek just means the 15th day of the month. This would have been seven weeks after Passover. It's called the Feast of Weeks. It's literally 49 days, pretty much. And in this, it was a festival where they would celebrate the culmination of the wheat and barley harvest. And actually, Josephus says that this actually was a statement that would mean it was the closing of a time and how appropriate that was. Because the closing of a time was also the beginning of the church. There would be great rejoicing, great crowds of people, as this was the third festival that people would come to Jerusalem and gather together. And before they would leave, we would understand that they were told to stay here by Jesus earlier in Acts chapter 1 through 2, that they were not to leave too early going back to their homes after the celebration. They were to stay and to wait for the promise. This is the beginning of the church, guys. 
And the beginning of the church happened through the power of the Holy Spirit by the work of God on the cross. And the audience initially is Jewish in context because that's who was here celebrating. As we look back in the Bible, we can see even Peter and even Paul and even Jesus scheduled themselves to be in Jerusalem at certain times to observe certain festivals. And it's important that we do the same, that we set aside time to observe special things in remembrance of Christ. But specifically, what do we learn exactly from what Peter preached here? Well, if you look at verses 14 through 36, what you're going to see is an incredible defense of the work of Christ, and then an incredible offense of the work of Christ. We were talking in apologetics class a couple weeks ago that apologetics is the defense behind the gospel, and we want to do that in evangelism, but we also want to get from our heels to our toes and go on the offense. And that's what Peter does. He shows us that we need to be scriptural in our support for justifications of God's work. To not let others around say that it is works of debauchery. If you look at verse 12 through 13, some were amazed, but some called it drunkenness. This is particularly talking about the Holy Spirit coming and speaking in the tongues of many languages. Glossa meaning languages, understood languages. Many people heard the message of the gospel in their own individual language. That means if they were from Macedonia, they would have understood it. If they were from Samaria, they would have understood it. If they were from Egypt, they would have understood it. And this was not to be mistaken as something apart from God's work. It was to be understood as a fulfillment of the promise, as we read in John chapter 16. So in that defense, he establishes authority. Verse 14 says he took a stand. You know, this is the kind of man who would take a stand when no one else would. I think we're particularly a congregation who's attracted to that. We want to hear the truth. We don't want to just hear a watered-down message. And praise God. He establishes authority, and he also establishes authority with the team. You see, he does it with the 11 there standing in association with him. It's hard to be a lone rager in Christian ministry when you preach the gospel. We should heed from Peter that he took a stand with a team aside him in association. And another thing we can learn from this last year in Christendom is that when someone takes a stand, support them if it's biblical. Don't just badmouth them on Facebook, but stand with them. Get behind him. Not only does he take a stand in establishing his authority through Scripture, he establishes authority with the team, but he establishes authority in public. He makes an open, open declaration. He boldly declares in front of many people, void of consequences. He thinks to himself nothing other than praising God and glorifying him. On the offense... In verses 22 through 36, he does something amazing, and we can learn from this. He quotes so much scripture in this passage. See, when you're on the offense, you're not on the offense unless you're speaking for God. And what we learn from here is that mainly his message was quotations from the Old Testament. Quotations about many different things. Jesus dying on the cross. A direct accusation of the godlessness and the accusation of the people who killed him and the prophecies of that in the Old Testament. He shares the resurrection. He talks about the defeat of sin by Christ. He talks about Christ's ascension. And he talks about the omnipotence of God. And if we could focus in on one particular section, it would be verses 22 through 36 in Acts 2. I'll just read this section. And I want us to just 
understand the message that was said here because if you think about this, a lot of messages are void of all of these facts, the breadth of it, the knowledge of it, the depth of it. Verse 23, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Jump over to verse 36 in Acts 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You know, Peter did not leave it to question who Christ was. And how he accomplished that was with Scripture. In fact, I did just a quick computation. 45% of Peter's words are direct illustrations or quotes from the Old Testament. 45%. He spoke 543 words and 247 of them were Scripture. I have trouble (laughs) condensing articles in 500 words. Peter was a master of Scripture. He knew how to say it and then explain it. And he was speaking to a heritage of faith, but to people that didn't have a heart of faith. And we can identify with that in the United States, can't we? It's not the leave it to beaver years anymore, guys. We're talking to a nation that once was under God, but now is under government. We have to understand that like Peter, we respond to the heart matter of the issue. That's what I love about biblical counseling. What's the heart issue? What's the issue behind the issue? And when you're in the battlefield, you don't try to give comfort. You have to shock the heart first. He shocks the heart with Scripture, with God's Word. And I want to ask you a question real quick. When you're out there witnessing, how much of your witness is with God's Word? Direct quotes, allusions, explanations, illustrations from God's Word instead of your own testimony. Because God's Word is what is useful in reviving the heart. How much Scripture do I use in my evangelism? Because Scripture is what gets somebody to convert humbly in the church. We can also learn from Peter that God uses imperfect vessels in his preaching. I mean, Peter, he's an interesting guy. He's a lot like me and you. He had the tenacity to rebuke Christ in Matthew 16. He had the tenacity to not keep watch for Christ in Matthew 26. He drew a sword at the Garden of Gethsemane in John 18. He denied Christ three times in Matthew 26. But this is also the same man who was willing to progress in sanctification and be used by God and wait for that moment where he would declare a sermon like this in Acts 2 because he also was the man who walked on water in faith, confessed Christ's deity, witnessed the Mount of Transfiguration, led the disciples, performed miracles in Christ's name, and was imprisoned for the ministry, and 30 years later would die. I wonder sometimes if we witnessed like this how long our life would last. How long would me and you in Arizona be alive if we were public in our authority, if we were associated with a team in our authority, and if we took a stand when no one else would? Would we be persecuted? I I think we would. So we got to be disciples of Peter today from his sermon. We got to grow healthy and learn that behind a church that is gospel growing, it learns to grow in conviction humbly. 
And that starts with the message of God, just like the sermon that he preached here, the mount of scripture he used, and which caused the next part in verse 37, a humble response. They responded because their hearts were pierced, guys. Their hearts were pierced. You know, this is what happens when you make a bold declaration with authority. We can't be apologizing all the time for the message of the gospel. And if we're growing and leaving things out in our growth, then it's not growth. And it's not helpful to the members of the church. If we're willing to just grow in number, but forsake the true doctrines of Scripture. I mean, Peter was talking about death and about judgment and about persecution and about Christ being killed by a particular group of people. I mean, he was accusing them, not letting them accuse Christ. He was putting Christ as the judge, not the people as the judge. And we have to do the same when we share the gospel. We have to realize that Scripture pierces the heart. It brings humility. We're not looking for somebody who wrestles their way into the church. We don't grow that way, and it ends up hurting us later. There's a great emotional distress to the heart of somebody who responds humbly. They realize that they're sinners and that their sin was partaking in killing Christ on the cross. Me and you have to realize our sin killed Christ. It was a part of that debt. And it should be responding in a humble way in the heart where we're reaching deep down in accusing ourselves and just responding in a turning towards God for what has happened. How could I, David, have been partaking of putting Christ on the cross? How could you, with your sin, with your things that nobody around you sees, when you're in your home or when you're at school, how could those actions be so deadly and yet at the same time realize that you have hope in Christ? That you can respond like they did and they said to Peter in the end of verse 37 and to the rest of the apostles, brother, what shall we do? You know, so many people want to come into Christ not asking what has been done, but what they can do. And immediately we learn that they haven't fully understood yet. We should be asking and proclaiming about what Christ has done, not what we can do, and they're still in their uh, Jewish mindsets here. They're thinking about performance. But one thing's helpful here is they respond, brethren. That's a little different than the accusation they had in Acts chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, where they thought that the acts of Pentecost were that of drunkenness. This is a little more of a humble approach, a brotherly love, a genuine response to the accusation hitting and piercing the heart. They've been stabbed to death. It's like a butcher knife entering deep into the heart and twisting and turning and not letting go. It's the idea of a hunter dressing an animal, of a sniper hitting the heart. It's reached the main organ and there's internal bleeding now. And the only way that they can be responded to is what has been done, not what we can do. You know, Charles Spurgeon, just five years after he wrote the Sword and the Trowel article, he illustrated this in a book called Soul Winner in 1892. And he was worried that too many people were coming into the church not humble. They were coming into the church identifying, but not necessarily being repentant and pierced to the heart from the message of God. And he said this about that. Sometimes we are inclined to think 
that a great portion of modern revivalism has been more a curse than a blessing. The old-fashioned sense of sin is despised. And consequently, a religion is run up before the foundations are dug out. Peter was digging out foundations here. Everything in this age is shallow. The consequence is that men leap into religion and then leap out. Now listen to this. Unhumbled they came to Christ, and unhumbled they remain in it, and unhumbled they go forth from it. I don't want that to be the case for here at Santan Bible Church. And I know you don't want to either, but we have to learn from Peter here that our growth has to first be by the standard of receiving converts that have responded humbly, not that have fought their way into the church. Peter was in the art of piercing the heart, and you and I have to be in the art of piercing the heart. And it was ultimately the responsibility of the Spirit of God through the Word of God to take the person of God and bring faith in God. So as we think about that, we have to understand that there is a depth of knowledge information behind a message that pierces a humble heart. Me and you need to be out there witnessing with Scripture. And we need to be in membership classes speaking Scripture. And we need to be in the hallways with Scripture and fellowship groups with Scripture. And if we sense that somebody's not fully there and arrived, don't speak your own words. Use Scripture 49% of the time. The second standard that Peter sets up and that we learn from James, or from Luke, sorry, who is the author of this, is that when the evangelist sees a response, the evangelist explains boldly. Look with me at verse 38 through 40. 38 through 40. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38 is a call to action. He boldly calls them to action. You know, it's interesting here. Peter (laughs) um, is just kind of dictated here like a script in in a play. Uh, Luke is just kind of saying what happened and he jumps out. There's not many words before action. He just says, repent. (laughs) And he goes right into an imperatival command, a direct command of action. And he says that this is what needs to be done in response. It's not to give them a treatise of how Jonas got in the belly of the whale. It's not to give them a treatise of how creationism is, you know, better. Uh, It's the idea that they, they need to change their mind. They need to be turned into somebody who respects God before they respect themselves. They need to worship God and not worship themselves. Peter understood now that he saw a dying heart on the ground and he needed to take a defibrillator and shock them over and over again until it brought life. He was going to use the defibrillator of the Holy Spirit to shock and bring life into them. And they needed to change their opinions, to change their emotional ascent of the world into their ascensus to Christ and to Christ's way. To change from seeing that Christ was a false prophet to Christ being the prophet. That Christ was not a person lying, that he was the Messiah that they killed on the cross and need to be heartbroken over it. This is an attitude change, a behavioral change, a spiritual change. Everything that's wrapped up in the soul of man needs to be new in its creation. This is a personal sorrow over your unbelief. And brethren, if you're here today in unbelief, if you have family members who are in unbelief, don't keep giving them arguments. 
Give them Scripture. Give them the work of the Holy Spirit. Give them the truth of Scripture that will respond and shock and defibrillate the heart into life. This is a person dying on the ground. They've got nothing left. They can't even speak spiritually. Why do we let them be in the judge's seat? Instead, we should be boldly calling them to action, like Peter did in saying, repent. Repent of your unbelief. Have sorrow over your sin and what it accused God of on the cross. And now believe in God and personally trust in God to save you from your judgment because it's coming. Repent from your unbelief. Jesus is the Messiah. He will clean you. There is no other answer. Secular moralism won't cause joy in this world. But only Christ can cause that through the revival of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Peter is having here. He's demanding us to use Scripture in its authority over the soul. Because we have no authority in the conversion process. The Holy Spirit is uniquely involved in that. And they're not to think that they can do something. They're to think that they can respond in repentance of their trust. So we have to think ourselves, have we been pierced to the heart? Have we responded in this way personally? Because we can't start as evangelists unless that has happened. And is our witness responding in this way, calling people to change their mind, using Scripture most of the time so that we rely on the Holy Spirit to change the heart? That way that converts respond humbly, not boldly. And that we explain to them as evangelists boldly the call to action. And then he says in the next part, verse 38, on the basis of your repentance, each of you be Baptist. I said a little different translation here, and I use the NASB, but on the basis of, because this is not in conjunction, it's not with repentance in the same form and the same strength. There's some grammatical things here, but I won't get into that. This is really close relationship of logic. And just in the way in the New Testament we saw people who were witnesses, marteru, were considered those who died for Christ, we also saw the connection between those who were Christians and those who were baptized. They were in connection with each other, and that's what this is talking about here. It's close connection, but also the direct imperatival command here is with repentance. And the indirect command here is because of that repentance, on the basis of that repentance, now be baptized. It's the logical implication of your declaration internal. And now you are ready to make a public proclamation on the external that you're identified with Christ. You know, in this particular aspect, as we learn that we're to call to action, we know that when we call to action, not everybody responds the same. That's one of the difficult things as an evangelist. Not everybody actually responds the same. And I can tell you an example, for instance, in speaking with somebody who was a believer for 15 years, professing believer, They'd never been baptized. And when I interviewed them and shared with them, they were still hesitant. And that very same week, I was with a believer who was a professing believer just for three months and was excited. And he was like the men here said, what shall we do? What was the difference between those two people? And I thought to myself, and I was looking at it, and I was wondering, what was the difference? Well, one of them was absolutely pierced to the heart. One of them was humbled. The other was either caught up in sin that was preventing him from acting in obedience or was not pierced to the heart, was not a Christian. Because baptism is associated with Christians. And we have to see that's in 
close connection, close reaction. It's that when you come to Christ, there's no age in direction with this. There's no socioeconomic status. There's no male or female here. It's just an action to those who have responded with a pierced heart. With those who have repented, who have metanoia, changed their mind, who are no longer acting. And as you, beloved, who are here and not baptized, I ask you to act in obedience, to be baptized, to make sure that your repentance is seen in close connection with baptism. And baptism is absolutely by immersion. It's the meaning of it. It means absolutely dipped in the water, immersed. There's no age referenced here, so that's not particular to it. If you're convicted and you have a public proclamation, then you have the right scripturally to be baptized. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch said in Acts chapter 8. What prevents me now from being baptized? Nothing. That's the beautiful thing, is that we're all equal in Christ. The significance is that it doesn't accomplish salvation, but it represents that salvation has been accomplished. And now you're identified in a church, and this usually happens in the church. That way we can hold you accountable to that public proclamation so we can come alongside you and say, hey, I heard you. And now what are you doing with your life? Where are you at? How are you? That's not true of the public proclamation I heard earlier. We can come alongside them and encourage them in that way. It's obedience to Christ. We have to act in that obedience as we call people to action. And it's always in Jesus' name, meaning it's signified with the authority of Jesus. Now, this is not contrary as we continue on in verse 38. Not contrary to Matthew 28, which is in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. It's not in contrast, contrast to that. Instead, the emphasis of Acts 2 is the authority of Christ over death on the cross. That's the emphasis here. It's in the name of Christ. Jesus being Messiah, he emphasizes that that is what is, it is all about. In John 16, it says, the Spirit will come and testify me, and he will glorify me. So we're trying to glorify God in these actions. We're trying to see that we respond in repentance, and with close association of that, we get baptized, and we see that all of this is in connection with forgiveness of sins because of our repentance, not because of our baptism. It identifies our actions as being forgiven. I mean, you should scream out saying, I'm forgiven. I've been saved. We have to see that this is in reference with what Christ has forgiven us. You know, this word forgiveness became unique to the church. It's another one of those words that we took for ourselves. We claimed it. It was largely a technical term of forgiving perditions in a courthouse or forgiving land provisions in the Old Testament, but the New Testament solidified it to a moral sense of forgiveness of sin. And it was turned into a Christian term where it meant forgiveness depends on faith in the person and power of Jesus now. We Christianized the term and it became known throughout all of Judea and to the ends of the earth that forgiveness is mainly a Christian's partaking because of what Christ did on the cross. Have you been forgiven, believer? Have you went out and shared that message of forgiveness in excitement and joy, not afraid, not ashamed, not apologizing the whole time, but in authority, publicly? And it says this 
in response to Acts chapter 16, that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise in John, sorry, John chapter 16. The promise has now been fulfilled, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, as we see, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we see here. This was what Jesus promised that would happen in Acts chapter 2, what he told them to stay in Jerusalem for. When he said, I have many other things to tell you, but I cannot tell, Peter picked that up and said many more. You know, this is unique as New Testament believers because the Old Testament believers did not have this relationship with the Holy Spirit, and me and you do. We have this relationship with the Holy Spirit that we can be indwelled. There were times in the Old Testament where certain people were filled with the Holy Spirit, like David, but they were never indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And as Christians in the New Testament, we need to partake in that being indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Do I feel indwelled because of my salvation and my thankfulness? Am I proclaiming that message? Am I sharing that unique relationship with other brethren? Am I seeing this so magnificent? This is the standard, guys. Not only that we first in the standard see that converts come in through a humble response, and not only that it's an evangelist that's explained boldly the message of those who come in a call to action, we also see that they explain boldly the promise. Go back real quick to John chapter 16 in that one section because we understand what the Holy Spirit does and what we can't do. We understand that we are just an explainer of what the Holy Spirit does. We explain the promise to people in our witness. As the church grows, we continue to hit them with this. And namely, it's in verse 7 of John chapter 16. And this is why it was important that Jesus left. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So we're now living in Acts 2 in that promise. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, here's where we're seeing people today in verse 9. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. We're in a world that doesn't believe in God, in Jesus as God. And we need to realize that's the Holy Spirit's job. We're in a world that believes, verse 10, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and they no longer see me. We're in a world that if they don't see it, they don't believe it. And in verse 10, or sorry, in verse uh, 11, and concerning judgment, because the rule of this world has been judged, the world thinks that Satan is winning, but Christ has won. And now, as a result of Acts chapter 2, we can go out and use the Holy Spirit through the power of Scripture to regenerate people in this world. We cannot use our own message. We can't use the message of the world. We have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in conversion. I want to ask you a question. Do you believe truly deep down that is the power of the Holy Spirit to convert the soul or is the power of your witness and your articulation of scripture he goes on to boldly explain the promise that it's not just for the Jews the promise is for you but it's also for your children this is a general promise to your families now it's not an absolute it's not saying that your children will be saved but it's saying that to all whom God calls will be saved. So teach this message to your children. Bring them to Sunday school. Share with them at the dinner table the messages and what we've been talking about. Don't rely on the world to teach them. 
But make yourself a partaker of this promise by teaching what the Holy Spirit has come to do. And rely on the Holy Spirit to bring it about. If you're struggling with a family member who's not saved, then pray that the Holy Spirit would convict their heart. Don't try to change the message for the sake of them converting. God calls them to himself. We don't call them to God. And then for us, Gentiles, it says the very next line, and for all who are far off, he includes now the whole world. He addresses both Jews and the whole world. And far off means if you're not close to Christ, you're far off. There's no in between. The disassociation is implied by unbelief. If you don't believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're far off. And he prefaces all of this with a promise of condition. And as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. You know, Peter teaches us here that all who are saved are only all who are called by God. And all who call God Lord, Master. You know, Jesus is in the seat of the judge, not the unbeliever. So why give them the ability to make judgments upon God? Peter didn't give them the ability to judge God's work, and neither should you and I. That is God's place, that is God's authority that has been established after the resurrection. He is Lord and Savior. And God is the one who determines who is converted. And the third bold explanation as we continue in verse 40, as evangelists explain boldly, they explain boldly in witness and exhort in the light of judgment. You know, so many people want to share the gospel. And this week I was looking at the sinner's prayers that so many people use. And I was surprised of how many sinner prayers were used, whether it was by Moody or whether it was by um, Benjamin, or, uh, Benjamin Franklin, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Billy Graham. So many of them are absent of speaking about judgment. And I don't know why, but if we don't speak about concerning judgment, we're not doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what we see here. And with many other words, Peter's picking up where Jesus couldn't finish off in John chapter 16, and he's illustrating with many other words a systematic approach to theology, but also a biblical approach to theology, a biblical theology. In this passage, he talks about almost every aspect of systematic theology. He mentions in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, theology proper about God. He mentions about biblical exegesis, how he explains Old Testament scriptures. He mentions Christ. He mentions the Holy Spirit. He mentions how the church would run, how sin is, how man is to respond. He mentions all things about Israel. And he solemnly testifies about all of this. He continually witnesses about each and every one of these. And that teaches us something, that he doesn't give up. You know, Jesus, as he traveled around in what we call the Cana Cycle, he continually visited certain places and he would re-hit them with the gospel. And as evangelists, we need to re-hit with the gospel. As people continue to come into this church, as we go grow in the gospel, we need to continue to re-hit people to keep on exhorting them in the gospel in all the aspects of theology. He solemnly testified of this. You know, there are 13 verses quoted here about Jesus' fulfillment. How much scripture can we quote? You got 13 verses memorized? We should all have scripture memorized at our hands so that we can continually and solemnly testify 
And what it says next, keep on exhorting them. It's one word, actually, in the Greek. It's urging and imploring and exhorting. He's on the offense, inviting. It's what we do when we're on the street publicly proclaiming. We don't give up. We continue on with our family members and with our friends and with our children and with our coworkers. And we continue on with all the message of the gospel and we have to tell them that they need to be saved from this next part, judgment. Particularly judgment. Because it is judgment that's coming. You and I need to realize that we're all going to be judged. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 talks about that. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. As we look to Scripture, we have to understand that we're calling them out of judgment and into repentance. So they needed to be saved. They needed to realize that saved was the idea of deliverance from judgment, from this perverse generation as it continues on in the verse, from perverse crookedness. Anybody here have scoliosis by chance? It's where we actually get this word from, scolios. It's the idea of crookedness. And I personally, I actually have 38 degrees scoliosis. It means my back is directed to the right 38 degrees. And what that means is that I'm not right. I'm crooked, literally, in my stance. And the thing about scoliosis that it always impacts other parts of the body. It actually perceives pain in other places. And that's what we have here in society, too. When one part of the system is crooked, the rest is crooked. It continues to dig in every facet of the world, and that's the generation we live in. We live in a crooked, perverse world in every facet, in the school systems, in the governments, in the TV. In every single area, it's not right. And we need to tell people that we're not living in a place that's taking care of us. We're living in a place that's not correcting us. And that's what we have to exclaim to people. We have to explain to people that they are to be bold in their call to action. They have to be bold in their exhortation and explanation of the gospel. And they have to be bold completely in their declaring of the coming judgment. And as we learn the third standard, we see that the standards have been converts coming to the church humbly. Have we come humbly? Converts coming to the church explaining boldly or evangelists explain boldly as they come humbly. And the third standard that Peter teaches us here is that we must conclude obediently. In chapter 2, verse 41, we see that all, so then, and this literally is in conclusion, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. You know, we have to understand as believers that we need to push people towards baptism if they've truly received the word of God. If they've truly been pierced to the heart, if they've truly responded humbly, if they've truly repented, they will naturally go into membership class in the middle of October with Tim. (laughs) They will naturally want to learn that their response and obedience is to be baptized. Why do we have churches filled with unbaptized believers, unbaptized servants, We're not growing healthy if that's the case, brethren. We have to continue to come alongside people who come into the church who have humbly responded and explain to them boldly and then conclude in obedience by baptizing those who proclaim the message so that they are now public. They're out there with Peter in public so that you and I can continue to add to the church. And that's exactly what happened here in the early church, that they were adding 
3,000 souls that day. But it wasn't just to add. As much as it was to solidify the internal transformation that had happened. You know, one thing that we see here is the power of preaching. You know, discipleship is great. One-on-one meetings are great, and I'm learning and growing in those areas. But the power of preaching throughout history has hit thousands of souls at one time. Like a thousand sharpshooters shooting at one time, piercing the hearts of everybody in the audience, that is the only thing in Scripture that delivers such a powerful message. It was used by George Whitfield for years. It was used by Charles Spurgeon for years, and it should be used by you and I in the Church of America today without any complaints, without any withholding, so that we don't have unhumble converts who leave unhumbly, who come in and out of church, who shuffle around, but that we could grow healthily, that we could grow with the standards here that Peter has, that we don't have a downgrade controversy in Santan Bible Church, like Charles Spurgeon was so acutely aware of. And I hope that you and I, as a result of coming through this passage, I know it was a lot, but as a result of coming through this passage, that we Don't seek to downgrade any discipleship for the sake of growth, but that we learn the standards that Peter set up for us, the standards to bring in people that have responded humbly to the gospel, to explain boldly as evangelists to those people, and to conclude in obedience through baptism and namely through membership as they add to the church. That's our call, beloved. That's what we're called to do. And next week as we look At Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and then and only then can we gather in these fellowship groups that we have throughout the week. Because if we're gathering before we've grown healthy, we'll be downgraded. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word and for the standards that you've set, for the incredible word of God and for how much scripture the gospel is equipped with. Lord, I pray that we rely on the gospel to grow and that we rely on the standards that Peter has and that we understand humbly how to come alongside this church so that we grow healthy and that we have healthy fellowship as a result of that. We lift this up in your name. Amen.